Welcome to Failing Forward. Today we're talking about Life Happens. Anne Sprinkle, the director of the Tipping Point Project, first joined us in 2019 to talk about square pegs and round holes, the experience of trying to set up an RCT in a way that didn't disrupt implementation of a child marriage project. Four years later, they've got their RCT results, and Anne and her team have learned a lot about research translation, about setting goals, and about understanding what you do when life happens. Anne says, valuing one person at their word, that also is truth. Listen to Anne today talk about her experiences and what she would do differently if she could do it all over again. Hi, everyone. My name is Anne Sprinkle. I am the project director for the Tipping Point Initiative. Um, so that means I am part of Care USA's gender justice team. Um, and I'm connected to tipping point teams in three regions for a child marriage initiative. Talk to us a little bit about the last time you joined us on Failing Forward. We were partway through our journey with our phase two randomized control trial, uh, which is the methodology that we chose for our impact evaluation for that phase of the initiative in Bangladesh and Nepal. Talk to us a little bit about the project itself. The Tipping Point Initiative is a 10-year initiative funded by the Candida Fund, as I mentioned, um, that seeks to address the root causes of child early enforced marriage. Um, the first phase of the initiative was uh, two and a half to three years. Um, we spent a lot of time and effort doing formative research, um, community-led participatory methods to really understand the root causes, the social and gender norms that are underlying the practice of, of child early enforced marriage in those places. Um, and getting contextually specific, understanding the nuance, and then testing out some community-led solutions, girl-led solutions to child marriage. And then we moved into phase two, um, which was a much more structured implementation package. Um, so multiple different components um, that we again implemented in Bangladesh and Nepal through our local partners. And we paired that with a three-armed cluster randomized control trial or RCT to evaluate the additive impact of taking a social norms approach to ending child marriage. And now we're in phase three. It's all about advocacy, influence, and scale. Um, we don't really do a lot of direct implementation um, through and with partners. We're really trying to address the discourse from the vantage point of all of these years of learning and experience and partnership. And when we talked last time, you talked about the challenges of an RCT and how that A, was a departure from the first phase of measurement and B, provided some challenges to implementation itself, made some things harder than we thought they were going to be. Looking back on it now, you've just gotten your RCT results. If you had to do it all over again, would you? Yes. But I would obviously do it differently. I hope I've learned over the last four years. I hope our team has learned, our teams have learned. I hope CARE has learned as an organization more about itself and, and the role that this type of research plays. Thinking back to the last time we chatted and the challenges to implementation, I thought implementation fidelity was so important. Like we spent a lot of time and effort defining exactly what we were going to do. And if a girl missed one session, what will we do? And then if she missed two sessions, what will we do? And then would she count as a continued participant and all of these different things? And so some of that was helpful to get clarity within our teams about what we are and what we aren't doing and why. 
and how it's contextually appropriate for them. But honestly, that all turned out to be way less important for the study for the RCT. Um, but what was important was activity monitoring. So counting the number of sessions each participant attended, that turned out to be incredibly important. Some people call that like bean counting or just like simple mindless monitoring, but it actually, you know, and I, I did not want to emphasize that a lot in our monitoring and evaluation system, but we did it and I'm glad that we did. On the flip side of that, our external monitoring visit, so the visits done by our research partners in country, those actually weren't helpful because our own qualitative monitoring and reflection on program learning was actually really robust. We put a lot of time and effort into that. At the end of the day, researchers just had a really limited time and bandwidth. They're just not going to analyze every piece of data that's ever collected by us or even by them. So I would really try much harder to prioritize. So for instance, one research partner didn't even present norms finding when they presented their first round of draft analysis for the end line. This is a norms study. So checking in and collaborating is way more important than you would think. Even if, like me, you're not a research expert, I am not a statistician, I never will be, um, but programmers' input really matters from my perspective. And I think I would have just been more confident in that feeling and in our stance throughout the whole process. Going back to the part you said at the beginning, difference between implementation fidelity and activities monitoring. Can you tease that out a little bit and how would you swing the weight now? So implementation fidelity, the way we understood it was we wanted to document exactly what we were going to do so that researchers could really understand the components and then they could say, this is the reason that we got this result. They could tie things together that way. They didn't have the time or bandwidth to do that really. Second of all, life happens. And for us, life means COVID. We went through a global pandemic in the middle of our RCT. So that's great that we had all of these big ideas for exactly every how every single session would go and how many different sessions a participant could miss before they were dropped out or, or things like that. But life happens. That's like the big crux of RCTs is they're made for laboratories and communities that we partner with and that we work with are not laboratories. Um, yeah, they deserve much more than that, um, as do we. If I can paraphrase, implementation fidelity is planning what you think will happen, and activities monitoring is understanding what did happen. That's a great way to put it. And also activity monitoring, what I was talking about was like simply completion rates. I know that we did this number of sessions with this many people, and I was able to thankfully use an electronic platform to count how many, for instance, participant A7, she went to 47 sessions. We were able to do that type of activity monitoring, and that turned out to be really helpful for us. And it also, that, that was also activity monitoring like that on a regular basis. We walked through that every single month. Like I said, we put a lot of time and effort into our own monitoring. And so we looked at participation rates inside our teams every single month, and at, very, at the very least on a, on a quarterly basis, um, to say, hey, participant ra participation rates are fluctuating. They're going down in this month. They're going up in this month. Or they're continuing to be difficult within this group right here. Why? And what do we need to do about it? That points a lot to this idea of, in many ways, RCTs push against flexibility. They push against adaptation. How did you square that circle? 
At the end of the day, our teams, for really good reason, wanted, they felt the pressure of the RCT as well. They felt the pressure of potential failure when somebody externally is looking so quote unquote rigorously at what you're doing and telling you if you did a good job or not based on their numbers. And so we had a lot of motivation, not just for that reason, but obviously for ourselves, we wanted to implement the best program possible. That's why we looked at monitoring data. That's why we looked at participation rates and saw that fathers in this area of Nepal are just consistently having a hard time getting to those sessions. So we talked about why that was and what we could do to increase their participation, enhance it, get it up, um, learn from other groups around them, learn from Bangladesh, whatever it took to get those participation rates up into a high quality participation setting. That's what we wanted to do. Did that have any impacts on the RCT? Did it make it harder to do that part of the data later? No, I don't think so. Because like I said before, I just don't think our researchers would even have the bandwidth to walk through that level of nuanced data. You mentioned that before, there's so much data nobody can look at it all. How would you have prioritized differently? I would like to attempt um, a much more candid conversation with researchers at the beginning of their contracts about what level of analysis is actually feasible on their end. Who is going to do it? Because for one of our research partners, it meant one single person in another time zone doing all of the statistical analysis and being the backbone of statistical rigor. So if that's your plan, what is really feasible for that person in their workload in a way that is impactful for the study? I think we had a really clear results framework, which was helpful. Um, and so that really helps you narrow down what you're going to measure, but then you get into how you're going to measure it. So for instance, do we need five different measures of agency, of girls' agency, if we're only going to use one of them? We're only going to analyze one of them. Maybe we should just pick one. Really going back to the reason for your RCT or the reason for your study. And so what are you going to measure that speaks most specifically to that? And then paring down the methods of how you're going to measure yourself against that. Now, how do you think about that with the play that every piece of data we collect is time and energy from a person? And it's not just time and energy from our own staff, it's time and energy from a girl or a father or a mother or somebody who is part of this process. How do you weigh that heavily enough so we start stripping down and streamlining our data sooner in the process? You have to think about your methods and what that takes from people. Focus group discussions, you don't, they don't really run longer than two and a half to three hours. In our experience, adolescents do not sit down for longer than an hour with someone for good reason as an adult. I don't think I would like to do that either. What really informed it is just like we simply an adolescent girl will not sit and talk to you for that long. You have to reduce the number of questions or the number of focus group discussions. I think we have to be reasonable of what we're asking people, especially, I mean, this gets into the morality of RCTs, just say, I think in general, you're asking these questions of girls or adults that are not benefiting or participating in a project or initiative as well. Um, I think that's just the simple fact of an RCT that you take on you take on that weight when you decide to do an RCT. And how do you think then about making it worth their time? What can you do for anybody who's involved in that to make sure that it is worth their time? 
I think that's a really hard question to answer because I have never experienced a timeline and a budget that is flexible enough to sit down with communities and ask what they really want out of a research study or if they even want it at all. So the simple answer to your question would be like, oh, we'll give them the information. Give them what other people think. That's a great start, but there's an assumption that people care. I'm not sure that that assumption always holds true. In an ideal world, you would ask communities if they wanted the study at all. You would want if they wanted, you would ask if they wanted the intervention at all in a way that is nuanced and safe for everybody to answer. And then you would be upfront with the fact that they're not getting an intervention, but they will be a part of the study. If that's the case, what do they want out of the study? If that's a deal breaker for them, that's a deal breaker and you have to walk away. That's an ideal world. I have not experienced that ideal world yet. You had reasons for doing an RCT. How do you weigh that against these challenges? The reason that we did the RCT was it was felt to be the most impactful investment that we could make with the Candida Fund to make an impact on the discourse of child marriage. I still find that to be true because we did so much work around the RCT. One of the things you talked about is in an ideal world, at bare minimum, you would get data back to communities. We all know handing a community member, or frankly, handing me an RCT report, not necessarily the thing that's going to be immediately useful to me. How did you think about translating from this study into things that were meaningful to influence the discourse? With translation to use, I think a good thing to remember in partnerships like these is that academics have a very clear purpose. They have a very clear set of guidelines for what is and is not rigorous. And then they have their own ways of communicating results that reflect the analysis that they're doing. They reflect all those things. Their role, what is and isn't rigorous, and how to communicate all of that. It's all tied together. And so I did not foresee the amount of work that it took to get from their results tables to a relatable paragraph of findings for somebody like you, let alone an adolescent girl in rural Bangladesh. If I did it over again, I would have to build in some type of step or bring in an additional partner to do more of that translation work of the quantitative part of the study in particular, and make sure that triangulation was really thoughtful across qualitative and quantitative. I was literally doing calculations on my cell phone. And then I was emailing researchers to verify if that was an acceptable portrayal of their results. I do not think that that is the best way to translate findings. When we communicated results to communities, I don't think there was a rich, lengthy discourse and dialogue between communities and researchers about this. I think it was quick. We leaned heavily on the qualitative of telling stories and saying, this is what we heard. These are lived experiences of people in your community. Why does that happen? What's the gap between the research report and the translation for communities, but also for us? To begin with, there is a lack of motivation for nuance. I have far too much nuance. I communicate in far too much jargon and long winding sentences and you know all of those things, but there seems very little motivation for nuance. And I think that is partly because, again, you go back to researchers' motivation and that is rigor. They stand on their rigor. It's their backbone. It's how they demonstrate value. And nuance does not serve that purpose. You said it earlier, quote unquote, rigor. Tell us about the air quotes. 
in a world that wants more RCTs, I feel a responsibility as someone's applying another one of those RCTs to also be a loud voice for other research methods, particularly qualitative methods that center the voice and dignity and the lived experiences of people that this data and information comes from. RCTs don't do that. Um, I think it's a real shame. Um, they're just not built to do that. The definition of rigor has been set for a long time to reflect things like RCTs. I don't think that is true any longer. I think qualitative methods are becoming to be understood as, as rigorous. But even so, people ask for qualitative methods. They ask for more focus group discussions. They ask for more key informant interviews. They ask for more advanced analysis like techniques and platforms. That process, you can lose respect for participants and what they're saying to you. You can lose respect for their lived experiences and simply taking one person at their word. This is what I experience. This is what is important to me. That is truth. End of sentence. There has to be a better balance. And how would you balance that if you could wave a magic wand? Things like systematic reviews that by definition rely on a certain quality and rigor of study to be included. They are not valued. They're not accepted unless they also include many qualitative sources that they have an expansive definition of rigor and evidence and that they include the and triangulate whatever their findings are with the lived experiences of participants providing information. And it brings us back to that translation question. If you literally can't even say to a girl, here's what our research concludes we should do next, what do you think? There's something broken there. Yeah, I agree. You've talked a few times about triangulation. Say a little bit more about how we triangulated here and were there any places where the quantitative and the participants themselves disagreed? Yeah, plenty. Like I said, this is a norm study. We wanted to know if it was more impactful to focus more on norm shifting interventions than to not for child marriage in particular. And a good example of where we triangulated was mobility. So we asked girls, about a range of questions about how often, how frequently, and how free to move they are and where that happens. So for instance, are you able to go to the market? Are you able to go to the market without permission? Are you able to go to the market without supervision? That type of thing. Quantitatively speaking, the way girls reported their behavior in terms of where they're able to go, that expanded even in the midst of COVID-19 lockdowns. Then we ask community members, adult community members, whether they participated or whether they didn't, what are your perceptions of a girl's mobility? Is a girl allowed to go to the market? So we saw, quantitatively speaking, girls reported behavior shifted and community members' perception of a norm also shifted. It was super unique that we were able to triangulate behavior and a norm shift. And then qualitatively speaking, we asked girls about their mobility too. They said, yes, and yes, we're able to go more places. Yes, it's generally more accepted, but there are still really big consequences. 
if, if I push back too hard, if I go, if I cross the line with mobility, if I go somewhere extra, if I'm talking to a boy at that place. So there's still limits. So we learned about the nuance of that norm. So great that quantitatively it shifted and girls' behavior is shifting, but there's still a lot of work to do. We did not find quantitatively that girls reported behavior on collective action actually improved all that much, but girls gave us incredibly powerful examples of girl-led collective action against sexual harassment. They said this norm-shifting activity right here where we demanded action from decision makers, it led to reduce sexual and physical harassment in these places. Fantastic. But that means that our qualitative and quantitative didn't match up. And they and again, the nuance of the qualitative. Yes, we've had this great success, but I still face huge consequences if I go in the wrong direction or I do the like there's still huge consequences. There's still really big sanctions. And I, I'm still really sensitive to those sanctions. And so it's still kind of driving my behavior. Um, and so even within, you know, one method, even within the qualitative method, you can get lots of conflicting answers. And how do you think about weighing those conflicts once you have different answers between the two? I think it goes back to both and like, okay, at population level, maybe we didn't see a reported change, but people's lived experience says that we are seeing success in these ways for these reasons. That's still a valid finding and we still need to listen to that and we still need to learn that maybe it's not reaching everybody and then we've got to ask ourselves why. Part of the reason for doing an RCT is that an RCT is considered to be so credible. You have RCT findings that opens the door for so many conversations. It changes the way you can present your data and who is willing to believe you about it. Is that still the best way based on what you've done? Is that still the option you would take? I think I would still do an RCT because I still have found this to be an impactful tool in the toolbox of shifting the discourse on child marriage. And Tipping Point has done so much work of priming the pump with other types of results, learning, ways we facilitate program quality, partnerships, conversations, alliances, putting out statements alongside other people. So that when the RCT results came, it wasn't random. It wasn't a project people had never heard about. I have researchers that were saying that they were waiting for this and thank you so much. And now I can use it. All that being said, I've seen RCTs that are total crap. Their methodology is not strong. So for instance, a, an RCT from multiple countries, I think it was from three or four countries on child marriage recently, they make really big claims, but then you look at their data and they actually only had success with child marriage in one out of three or four geographies. Spin is common, even though it's supposed to be rigorous and it takes a specific skill set to understand whether what you're looking at is spin or not. And not everybody has that skill set. Not everybody should. We even have to critically assess RCTs and whether we should include them or not as well. You talk about spin, and I've had so many conversations with researchers when I say we need to translate this. They say, no, that's spin. You can't do it. Any translation at all that is not mine in my format is spin. You are essentially lying if you do anything besides make them read my entire 50-page report in all its glory. How do you navigate that? goes back to translation. I was doing calculations on my phone to try to make a relatable, understandable 
sentence or two for people. And then I went back to my researchers and I said, is this acceptable? They said, no. And I was like, okay, great. Well then explain it to me. They could not in less than three paragraphs. So I had to say to them, okay, I can't talk about that result. I don't know how to do it in a way that is relatable and impactful for people. You were not able to help me translate that in, in that way. And so we just, we can't talk about that result. I can't make it better. The beginning of your partnership, I think with a research partner, is just like, this is what we need to do. We need to make it relatable for somebody that doesn't know what a social norm is and vaguely knows what child marriage is. How are you going to do that? Can you show me an example of how you've done that? Um, that has to be part of their motivation just as much as it is ours. And if it's not, then that probably isn't the right research partnership for care. And when you talk about setting up research partnerships, one of the things we see a lot, not just in this example, but all over the place, there's a real deference to the research. And the researcher really pushes for that. Independence, I have rigor, I have truth, I know the way. That loses something very important. And sometimes it ends up in a place where then they haven't actually looked at any of the data or they've looked at 2% of the data that got collected. How do you create that space where the team feels safe and comfortable saying, we need to talk about that? We're not trying to break the methodology. We're not trying to spin the results, but we need to have a conversation here and we can't just defer to the statement. How do you set that up? I wish I would have had more confidence in my perspective and my point of view as a program person from the beginning because there is no research partnership without my teammates in Bangladesh and Nepal that know those communities and have spent way more time with adolescent girls that are at risk of child marriage. I think it's about those conversations at the beginning and what is the purpose here and what is the role of everyone. The role of everyone is to translate. The role of everyone is to triangulate. The role of everyone is to deliver the highest quality programming possible to the communities that we serve. Yeah. Is there anything else you want to say to the audience today that I did not give you a chance to? And if you had to sum this up in one or two sentences, key learnings, what would you say? If you're thinking about an RCT, you really need to know the one or maximum two things that you want to get out of it, why you want those things, and what are you willing to give up to get them? If you can define all of those things, um, I think you're going to be in a much better position to have a fruitful experience. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much for joining us. Stay tuned next time where we're going to be talking about Don't Feed the Zombies, the importance of looking at impact data instead of just trying to make the biggest reach possible.